Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. I wanted to introduce you to a very special episode. We're dropping right as we head down to Austin for South by Southwest EDU on Monday, March 7th. If you happen to be at that conference, definitely stop by the podcast stage at 11 a.m. local time. And I'll be doing a panel with Terry Gibbons, Dan Harrison, and Tarlin Ray. This episode is going to feature conversations and episodes I've done with each of them in recent years. It's a nice episode to set us up for what we hope will be a fantastic panel. I'm really excited to get down to Austin again and get back out into the swing of the conference experience. Hopefully a little serendipity and some insight along the way. That's coming next. But for now, let's listen a little bit to conversations with Tarlin, Dan, and Terry. Thanks as always for listening. Welcome to Trending in Ed. This is Mike again. I've been reflecting a lot over the last few years, thinking back to two years ago when we were supposed to fly down to Austin for South by Southwest EDU. And on March 6th of 2020, the mayor of Austin canceled South by Southwest. And by virtue of that, South by Southwest EDU was also canceled. And our plans to head down there and record a live session were really put on hold for the last two years. Coming full circle, fingers crossed, it looks like we will be heading back down there. This will allow for some closure and some resolve of what may have been frustrating and may have been kind of a blocker in at least my mind. So I'm looking forward to turning the page. Listeners know I'm a big fan of the Zygarnik effect, Bluma Zygarnik, a pupil of Lev Vygotsky, established in the Gestalt psychology frame that we remember incomplete things better than we do complete ones. So right now, this is still an open book. Hopefully soon it'll be closed beautifully with a panel down there. And the panel is going to consist of three folks who've been on trending in education before. The first I'm going to talk about is Dr. Daniel Harrison. Dan and I went to New College of Florida back in the 20th century. And Dan went on to become a sociologist and, and a, someone who does social histories, cultural histories. I had him on Trending in Education to talk about his book, Live at Jackson Station. Great appearance. We'll hear a little more from that later on. But that ultimately led to us collaborating together to launch a podcast called Inside Jackson Station, which I'm going to play a little bit for you now so you get a sense. Dan will be down in Austin with me. He'll be part of the panel. Inside Jackson Station is the name of the podcast, InsideJacksonStation.com. Check it out. I think you might enjoy what you're hearing. To give you a taste, here's how that podcast begins. Thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome to Inside Jackson Station. The 
podcast that takes you inside the legendary South Carolina blues bar. That's Nappy Brown singing with Bob Margolin on guitar. You'll hear more from Bob later on when he's interviewed. To begin, let's listen a bit to what it sounded like to be at Jackson Station on a night when Nappy Brown was singing and Bob Margolin was playing guitar. Jackson Station might have been forgotten had it not been for the work of Dan Harrison, the author of Live at Jackson Station and the host of this podcast. Let's listen to Dan describe how he discovered the story of Jackson Station, which ultimately led to him writing the book. I migrated down to South Carolina, and after a one-year stint at Furman University, I, I've been at uh, Landry University, which is in Greenwood, South Carolina, for the last uh, 16 years or so. I'm a professor of sociology here, and also have been doing a number of research projects over the years. In 2014, I started my second uh, book project, which is Life at Jackson Station, which focuses in on this blues bar in the South Carolina upstate, in a little town called Hodges, South Carolina. And this bar was housed in an old railroad depot that had been built in 1870. And it was owned by this guy named Gerald Jackson and his boyfriend, Steve Bryant, and then also Gerald's mother, Elizabeth Jackson. So that in and of itself is kind of interesting because you have two gay guys in uh, the upstate South Carolina. And this was 1975 is when this blues bar opened for the first time. In the early 80s, they started having amazing music shows there. And your listeners has probably heard of about a, a jam band called Widespread Panic, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the, the biggest kind of musical acts uh, still around today. And they came over from Athens, Georgia, and uh, when they were, you know, very young and just starting out, and they played nine shows at Jackson Station over the years. And they were very welcomed by Gerald and Steve, and they really appreciated the family vibe of Jackson Station, the tolerant nature of the place, the diversity of the place. Jackson Station was the only late night uh, club in the area. And so people would come from miles around. They would drive up from Charleston. They would come down from Charlotte. They would come down from Greenville across from Athens and up from Augusta and so on and so forth. And and they would party there and, and, and drink and listen to live music until about five o'clock in the morning. You'll hear a lot of people talk about the late night hours at Jackson Station. It's part of what made the place so amazing. We'll listen now a bit more to Nappy Brown and Bob Margolin playing B.B. King's Three O'Clock Blues. Get a sense of that late night feel before picking back up with Dan. in the morning and I haven't 
We're going to pick up again now with Dan's story. Like any good blues story, there's a little bit of tragedy to it. The story of Gerald Jackson and Jackson Station took a tragic turn in April of 1990. We'll pick up with Dan here. It all came crashing down one day when Gerald, the owner, got attacked by a maniac with a bush axe in the parking lot. And then the club, for all intents and purposes, closed down. Right. And when I moved to Greenwood, which is where my uh, university is housed, I had heard about this place being just, you know, this amazing kind of oasis of tolerance and kind of just diversity and cosmopolitanism, which is really kind of rare in, you know, the deep South. And I right. live in a place which is still, it's a very red state, South yep. Carolina is, but you have pockets of, of blue and, and lots of purple kind of along the way. I found that idea to be very fascinating. And I was looking for the next research project. And so I started to do some investigation into Jackson Station as a musical identity and kind of this local institution that would promote and nurture and foster a whole bunch of musical talent yeah. over the years, actually. And right. uh, a lot of, you know, bands would come over from Atlanta and Athens. Love Tractor, which was uh, kind of contemporaneous with REM, they have a, a huge following still today. They played there, the Georgia Satellites. You had some amazing blues play there. Yeah. Nappy Brown, the R&B songwriter. So it was a fascinating case study, and I was kind of amazed that no one had done anything with it before then, as a sociologist and as kind of a researcher, you're always looking for a story that hasn't been told before. Yeah. And the fact that it was this iconic musical establishment, and then also the fact that this apparent hate crime yeah. happened there was all it needed for me to get interested in it. Did a lot of interviews, about 65 interviews, uh, a lot of archival research, and then also a lot of the deep analysis of the court transcript. And Hopefully the end result is, I, I think is a pretty decent read. The really amazing thing about Jackson Station is he had a number of different distinct social groups or subcultures or identities claiming the bar as their own. And so the place was known for being a biker bar. And so you'd have beefy biker guys show up. You'd have 10 or 12 motorcycles, you know, parked out out front, but it was also known as a gay bar. Not completely, you know, not always as a gay bar, but yeah. gay people were welcome there. It had gay owners and so on and so forth. And so the gay and lesbian crowd adopted it as their own. The college kids would also come and adopt it as their own. The rednecks, you know, would also hang out there. Yeah. And the countercultural types, you know, the 1980s, people listening to New Order and PIL and The Clash and, and yeah. sort of, you know, they would feel, you know, welcomed by Jackson Station. And, and there was sort of a, a certain respect of difference there, which I think was very genuine. And very rarely were there any sort of interdisciplinary squabbles. And I think Gerald Jackson in, in particular was gracious enough to basically let everyone know that all were welcome. And so in this respect, it was a, a very Catholic with a small C place. Right ecumenical vibe was going on there. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that is something which you don't find a lot of places. This is Mike again. I'm a big fan of the Ethel Merman quote. It's better to sing one song too few than one song too many. So hopefully that was just enough of a taste of Inside Jackson Station. Check out the original episode, my interview with Dan from about a year ago. 
Inside Jackson Station. We're about to finish up season one, six episodes, interviews with artists like Bob Markle and Dan will be down there with me in Austin. Check us out at the podcast stage. Also joining us down there will be Terry Givens. Terry has been a regular guest on Trending in Education many different times. She's a political science professor now at McGill University. She's written a couple of books in recent years. We've talked about both of them. Radical Empathy was the first book, which is now out on paperback. And her new book is called The Roots of Racism, which is a comparative look at racism and its roots, not just in the U.S., but also spanning all the way back to the transatlantic slave trade back in the 15th century. And she goes deep into some of the differences and commonalities between European flavors of nationalism and white nationalism and racism and what we're seeing here in the U.S. I found it really profound and insightful. I'm really excited to get Terry's perspective any chance that I can, and she will be down as part of the panel in Austin as well. Let's listen in now to a bit of my interview with Terry from earlier in February of this year. Check out the whole episode if you like what you're hearing. Well, Terry, always a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. Welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you. It's great to be here. And, yeah, and, uh, and you are uh, a prolific writer. You have a new book, which we definitely want to talk about. I did read it, which is a uh, credit. To Amazing. Me. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's an interesting reading. It actually broadened my perspective as someone who maybe is overly domestic U.S. focused in my perspective. The book's called The Roots of Racism, The Politics of White Supremacy in the U.S. and Europe. It's really spanning the Atlantic and, and spanning a really wide range of history, going all the way back to the 15th century, I believe, and then yes. covering some of the, the critical periods in our history right up through George Floyd and summer of 2020 Black Lives Matter. So it was also really great in that it's not a pre-pandemic zeitgeist, you know, at the end of it, you're capturing more where we really are right now it's relatively hot off the presses but we definitely wanted to talk a little bit about that any high level ways to understand that book because the other book that you wrote that that went out last year is radical empathy and we're going to be at south by southwest edu in march on the podcast stage doing a panel together if folks are interested in terry's stuff check us out at south by southwest edu the books are radical empathy and the roots of racism We'll probably be talking more about the transatlantic, broader global perspective about race, which is what I really got out of the new book, which was really a bit of a revelation for me. So I wanted to spend a little time on that. Can you just catch our listeners up on, on who you are and and what led you to, to write the, maybe the most recent book? So I'm a political scientist and I recently joined McGill University and my research over the years really led up to this point. I started out studying anti-immigrant parties in Europe, you know, the Front National and the, the Republicaner in Germany and so on. And so my first book was Voting Radical Right in Western Europe. And that book really came at an interesting time in Europe because it, at the same time that the far right 
Austrian Freedom Party was coming into power in, in Austria. In response to that, the EU passed the Racial Equality Directive and then led up to another book project that uh, came out in 2014 called Legislating Equality. Part of the problem is when I was studying these issues back in the late 90s, you know, everybody in Europe, except the UK, of course, would say, oh, well, race isn't an issue here. You know, we don't have any problems. So, but then they went and passed the Racial Equality Directive in, in 2000. So it was like, well, really? It isn't? And, and, and I, but I've also seen this divide within political science of people who study the U.S. and people who study other countries. And you know, when I was doing this work back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I can count on one hand the number of us, especially people from Black or minority backgrounds who are doing this work in Europe. And obviously there are people in the UK and other people in Europe doing some of this work, but it was not you know, even remotely mainstream. I mean, my books were well-received, but I feel like I've been forging this path throughout my career. And, you know, even studying immigration politics beyond the U.S. wasn't, well, just in general, wasn't a topic that a lot of people were, were looking at back then. The American Political Science Association, it's only been the last 10 years or so that they started a section on the politics of immigration. Yeah. And so there's been this void in the literature that has not pulled all these pieces together. And you have to have an understanding of U.S. politics and history and European politics in order to make this connection. And that's what I've been doing over the last few years and in writing this book is saying, look, you know, these ideas, you know, and, and I'm really pulling together a bunch of work by other people, right? right. It's right. my own research over the last 20 years, but it's also here's what, you know, Bob right. Vitalis and Jessica Priest and, you know, right. all these other you know, people, Michael Hanchard, you know, all these people. So it's really, it's coming from my academic perspective, but I think it's very accessible in the sense that I'm really trying to say we need to have a more comparative approach to the study of race because these ideas didn't come from just anywhere. Right. You know, they go back to the 15th century and the right. development of the slave trade and then what happened after Reconstruction and what happened with immigration and, and you know, all these different things are, are coming into play right. in this idea of, of race and racism. Things that are systemic and that are structural in nature take a long time to, to turn around or change. And they also require a more broad understanding so that anything that you try to do to make a change is likely going to have influences in other places. I was really struck by some of the white nationalist politics of the U.S. wound up informing the the Nazis and back in the, the 30s, which was, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are a lot of those types of connections that, you know, I don't know, I, I maybe I just think of things in terms of the the high school <laughs> social studies classes that I took where you take your world history in one context. And in that case, it's, you know, the U S and how we helped in these world wars. And then in the U S history, there is, you know, stuff about the civil war and, and back, you know, I'm showing my age, but how much coverage of, you know, reconstruction and Jim Crow even made it into, to my education is, is, is a little bit spotty, but it was really useful. I think for the, that way for me, where I feel like I can speak with more confidence now about how some of the things that I know on a more local domestic level are connected to things that are happening around the world. And that is something that you do get into here as well, where, you know, as much as we might look at the Trump presidency and, you know, the, what happened on January 6th and 
you know, what, what's, what's going on nowadays politically in the U S as, you know, uh, a once in a lifetime phenomenon, when you do take that step back, you see, oh, I got it. This is Trumpism is this flavor, but if yeah. you see, you know, Le Pen in, in France, there's another flavor there. The Netherlands has its own. And, and then even some of the stuff that I had no real context around the association with citizen between citizenship and immigration, how much that varies by cultures within Europe and how much of that parallels how we understand race in the U S I really hadn't been exposed to that before. And that's why I'd recommend this book, even for non-academic, I view myself as a non-academic, I'm like academic curious, but I did feel like there was a lot in this that, uh, was hugely relevant for me. And, and now it is, you know, it's black history month in the U S like, I think a lot of what's happening in the NFL and elsewhere is making people think more critically about, uh, some of this stuff. Any thoughts on how this book connects to the conversation that we may be more familiar with in the U S these days? Absolutely. And you know, I have to give props to the 1619 Project because even though it's been criticized for various reasons, you know, it's funny because I, I, I saw an article from a uh, historian. Well, we already knew all this stuff. It's like, no, we did not. You may have known it and your students who took your classes may have known it, but right. I'm guess you know, that's a pretty small percentage of the population. Right. And, you know, and for me, it's not that I didn't know this stuff. It's just I didn't really think about, you know, that's why I had to do the historical deep dive right. and say, wait a second, you know, all of this stuff I've learned. And frankly, I, none of it did I learn in college or as a PhD student. Right. This is all stuff I've learned on my own, mm -hmm. uh, reading different authors and, and doing preparation to write this book. And so what people need to understand is that that those who don't understand the, their history are doomed to repeat it. And that's what we're seeing is, mm. you know, even in the, you know, take the NFL, right? We had the Rooney rule and it did a, some good, you know, there was a point in time when we had a Super Bowl with two black coaches playing against each other. And yet the system itself is so persistent mm -hmm. that you can have an intervention like the Rooney rule. And yet we're back to, you know, as of today, I think what two black coaches yeah. right. in the NFL. Right. And, and I'm at McGill University where, you know, two years ago, they had eight black faculty out of 1700. Now we've increased that number, tripled wow. that number in a couple of years. Yeah. But so the problem is you can't understand where we are today without understanding that history. How did we get here? Yeah. Why is it acceptable that we, or why is it a norm that it's okay to have a white institution with no black faculty? You know, right. Right. why is it okay to have you know, an institution like the NFL, you know, why is it okay that in Europe, I mean, you know, there's a strong connection to sports here because of course in Europe, you have a situation where black athletes get taunted on the field, right. um, you know, bananas thrown at them, you know, all kinds of stuff happening. And of course, you know, they're trying to fight the racism in FIFA, but not doing a very good job of it. Right. And so if we don't understand the history and how we got here and why it's not just in the U.S. or just in Canada or just, you know, even in a place like France where they've had a, a, a successful radical right party or or in Germany, which had now has a successful radical right party. And, you know, it's it does tie to not only is there the connection between you know, in history for you know, between the Jim Crow laws and in Nazi Germany, but South Africa as well. Right, the apartheid. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to understand that ideas are, don't, you know, ideas don't respect borders. Correct. And um, in fact, there are people who purposely connect and that is happening today. It's happened in the past. It, it goes back to, you know, so much of this transmission happened through the Catholic church in the 15th and 16th century. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and the Kings who were beholden to the church and, and all of that. And so I think it's really important to understand that, you know, these things are so persistent and it's so hard to change them because we have to deal with the underlying structure, not only the underlying structures, but the norms and the ideologies that lie underneath them mm-hmm. or the, just the things that we accept, you know, right. I mean, do we ever, you know, take a step back and think about the fact that, I mean, it, Black History Month maybe, but, you know, it's every single day, you know, we're seeing the results of, you know, 500 years of racism. This is Mike again. As you can see, conversations with Terry are always thought-provoking. I always feel like I come away a better person, learn a little bit along the way, and uh, particularly in her book, Radical Empathy, she talks about pushing yourself to do the emotional work and to share your own vulnerability and lead in that way. Terry's a real inspiration. Excited to get her perspectives on what's new and emerging in the world around us down in Austin. And then last but not least, down in Austin, I'll also be joined by Tarlin Ray, who is my co-host, for the Running It Back podcast, which we launched back in the summer of 2020. Tarlin had been on trending in education many times over the years, talking about workforce engagement and generational zeitgeists, lots of interesting topics. But I was really happy to have Tarlin when we were going through the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic back in 2020. I needed a release. I was doing a lot of education podcasts. I was really busy because of the pandemic, but I needed a little bit of a refresh. And at the time, live sports was not happening due to the COVID protocols. So the only thing that sports fans like Tarlin and I had as refuge in those early days was the Last Dance documentary series about the 1998 Chicago Bulls. Tarlin and I did a number of episodes as part of Trending in Education that ultimately spun off to become its own podcast, Running It Back. You can find it anywhere you find your podcasts. Also check us out at runningitback.fm. Most recently, we've been having a lot of conversations about the NFL. We talked about the Rooney Rule. We did that last January when the hiring carousel in the NFL happened again. We talked about it once again. You may have noticed Terry referenced it also in her conversation with me. Tarlin and I went deeper into the case that Brian Flores has issued against the NFL, which dropped right at the beginning of Black History Month. We've been covering that. We also go to Lighter Fair. Uh, We've done a lot of issues on women's tennis, episodes about Simone Biles, episodes about Tiger Woods, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, practice, Allen Iverson's practice. It's a little more of an informal, entertaining 
conversational flow, a little different than the interviews you might hear typically on Trending in Ed, but we're always looking for lessons learned. Tarlin's a real resource with a depth of experience as a ed tech investor and a leader, and he's someone I really rely on for perspective. Let's hear a little bit of me and Tarlin talking on our most recent episode about the NFL when we dove into a little bit more about the Flores suit. Normally, we're very collegial, but I'm a little now spicy. Nice. That's how I'm doing. Good, good. I'm at the Scoville Chili Pepper Index. You're getting towards the warmer, the, the, the warmer temperatures. Spicy hot. It's not even like a temperature. It's just spicy. Speaking of spicy, you were talking NBA. This, is, this, this episode's going to launch right in the midst of the Super Bowl hangover. So the Super Bowl game will be, Super Bowl will be in our rearview mirror by the time folks are hearing this. For us, it's about to happen. So there is the NFL going on. There will be a game tomorrow. It'll be in the past, in the future. It's very exciting. The Bengals are playing the Rams. Who knows? There'll be commercials. Oh my God, those commercials, Starlin? There'll be a game. Yeah. It'll probably will be something we won't cover. And we have enough people talking about it. And then people will be thinking more about James Harden's hammy and Kyrie's how much he's saging up the locker room and whether Ben Simmons, his adenoids get activated. Who knows? What's KD going to be doing? That's next weekend. That's the all-star extravaganza coming on the rising of the NBA. But right in the middle of that, sandwiched between your NFL hangover and your NBA all-star weekend, we're running it back. And we're running it back to the NFL coaching situation, Brian Flores. Our previous episode, we talked about the NFL had a blackhead coach problem. I think that was borne out and that was released the same day that Brian Flores sued the NFL in a class action suit, which Tarlin has read and may have opened in front of him in the event that he needs to reference it. We wanted to follow up on the NFL coaching situation. A lot has happened. People have been hired even because when we recorded this just a couple of weeks ago, the lone man standing, I referred to him as the Highlander, although I think that analogy actually breaks down if you think about it, but that's not important. What's important is we were looking, looking at this for a while. We talked about the Rooney rule for a while, but like a ton has happened. You've read through the Flores suit. Shout out to Lou Moore and the Black Atlee podcast was connecting Brian Flores to Kurt Flood, which I think is an interesting angle to run it back to that history and try to think about what he's doing for NFL head coaches and, and, and what's going to happen on that front. Lots of lessons learned. Can you catch our listeners up? Some of our listeners are maybe not as deeply ensconced in the tribulations of NFL front offices. You, however, you've done some of that prep, right? You've done a little bit of something here. Uh, <laughs> Brian Flores, the Tuesday after on um, start of Black History Month, February 1st, sued not only the NFL, but the Giants, uh, the Miami Dolphins, and threw in the Denver Broncos into that suit. Basis was a discrimination, discriminatory practices, and a lot of the trigger event was a text message from the GOAT, one Bill Belichick, who 
has two Brian's in his, like I'm thinking of a uh, uh, bill with a flip phone or an old school Blackberry, two Star- Brian's Star Tech. Yeah. Two, two Brian's in his Blackberry. It's funny meme. He should put black Brian, white Brian, but two Brian's in his Blackberry. And basically prior to Flores going in to interview the giants, he was congratulating Brian Dobble, who we've talked about in the last pod. Yeah. Done great work as the offense coordinator for the Buffalo Bills. Congratulated him on getting the Giants job. Yeah. So then imagine Flores. And we've all known people think that the Rooney rule is a sham. Let's check that box to make sure we're talking to a minority candidate. Yeah. The night before what is this big interview, and he's getting pumped up by members in the Giants organization because they bring in a new general manager and they're saying, we hope this all goes well. He has to then sit through an interview the next day, right? knowing that he's not the guy. Mm-hmm. So Brian Flores, we talked about, I was upset the last pod and I, yeah. my friends were poking me a little bit because they, they could feel that I was a little upset, but they wanted me to show it and yeah. get a little more overt about it, that right. you just don't fire a winner. And now Brian Flores, not only is he someone who should have never got fired. And it was interesting, and we'll talk about it in his lawsuit, the amount of number of times that a winning coach has been fired, mm-hmm. but he's done something which most would never do, which is potentially ruined his opportunity to ever coach in the NFL again by suing right. NFL and particular teams. Cause we know how close knit the 32 team owners are, Right, you check the shield. And the most recent example of someone being ostracized was Colin Kaepernick. So it was, it was a stunning moment on February 1st, start of Black History Month for the Flores suit to drop, super brave by Flores. And if you do read through the 58 pages and some, you don't need to read all the legalese and yeah. the sections that you can skip. You could read the Belichick texts at least. The Belichick text, and there's great pictures in there also. So not yeah. a lot of le- lawsuits have pictures. Right. It is a. Is there a thought? Is there a podcast? Of there the- is. A, you cannot hear read this, but it's not. When you read it, you're not surprised. And he is literally just bringing a lot of what's happening in NFL to light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's why I was saying running it back. I. We've talked a little bit about Kurt Flood historically, but I, I do think this is a time to make that connection back in history where folks may not remember Kurt Flood, who was a all-star center fielder for the Cardinals in, in the, the 1960s into the early 70s, who wound up suing Major League Baseball to question the the rights of owners to their, their players' contracts and the ability of the player to actually ultimately become a free agent. Interestingly, his career suffered. He was blacklisted to a large extent afterwards, not to mention the psychological trauma he went through. He was never really the same baseball player again. I think there's more upside for Flores in his future, but it is an interesting uh, analogy and it is a, a way in which a movements to change things is that the whistleblower or the, the first person to move does so to their own detriment, but ultimately in service of of something more. And that's where I do think Brian Flores as a figure is someone we're going to continue to get to know better. And the idea that an individual can hold the owners of the NFL accountable 
is somewhat reminiscent of Kurt Flood doing that as a baseball player. And Flood is still remembered in labor history, particularly sports labor history. But, uh, but the idea of fair practices when engaging with a large, powerful organization, that is really what we're talking about. So we'll include a link to Wikipedia where you can read up on Kurt Flood, just like I have. Coming from the law, just some interesting things that, and you don't want to ever have a lawsuit come out like this, but some of the digging that we were trying to do for the last pod, just here's some facts. Rooney Rule, in the last 20 years since it was instituted, there have been 129 vacancies and 15 have gone to black candidates. That's a little over 10%. It's great math right there. Yeah. Black coaches in NFL have an average lifespan or a time in seat of 2.5 years while white coaches have 3.5. So another year mm. in the seat. And we've talked about oftentimes you're taking a team that's in a turnaround and you're not given enough time to build culture and start to see uh, sort of fruits of your labor. Steve Wilkes. We look at you, Arizona Cardinals, one year in the seat and yeah. replaced by Kingsbury, who won two more games than Steve did. And Wilkes was saddled with one Josh Rosen, who is still not even number nine pick. I'm a UCLA Bruin, but not anywhere near the talent that Kyler Murray is right. and never really given a shot. The other one was interesting in the 58 pages that I had yet to actually read was since 1978, there's only been 16 teams that have fired a winning coach. Mm. And four of those coaches that were fired were black head coaches. Yeah. So, including, including Flores then, right? Yes. Mm. So it's just a fascinating to read it. It's sad to see it all spelled out. This is Mike one last time. Always fun to chop it up with Tarlin. I feel very fortunate. We've now done coming up on 50 episodes of Running It Back. And I'm excited to see the interaction among the different panelists we're going to have here. Ideally, we'll be interacting with a live audience. We're going to try to connect and interweave some of the different conversations. I think there actually are themes that are shared across everything that Dan and Terry and Tarlin are doing very much in line with what we're trying to do here on Trending in Ed and at Palmer Media. Let us know what you think. Hit us up at Trending in Ed on Twitter. We're pretty active there. Also, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Michael P. Palmer on LinkedIn. You can find me by looking for Palmer Media, looking for Trending in Ed. And find me if you are at South by Southwest EDU, I'll be down there with my panelists. We'll be enjoying time around others, hopefully in a safe and engaging environment. I've always really enjoyed the stuff that Ron Reed and Greg Rosenbaum put together as part of South by Southwest EDU. And with that, we'll bring this episode to its conclusion. Thanks as always for listening. If you like what you're hearing, write us a review. Share the good word. We'll be back again soon.
This is Trending in Education.